The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The name I gave to this non-residential retreat is Awareness and Wisdom. We've been talking a lot about the awareness side of the equation, a little bit about the wisdom side, a little bit about how this practice, this awareness helps to cultivate understanding, in particular understanding around how our minds get involved in creating our struggles. But today I'd like to more directly speak about that side, about the wisdom side. Saida Utejaniya is the teacher that I heard use this word more than any other word, more than any other teacher I had heard use it before. He spoke a lot about wisdom, about the experience of wisdom, about recognizing wisdom at work in your mind. And for the first, you know, while of knowing him, I was like, again, kind of like with the thing I mentioned this morning about teachers saying, oh, feel the sense of presence. When Sayadaw said, recognize wisdom at work in your mind, I thought, what? What does that mean? And um, uh, so, you know, that's about all he said to me. You know, I, I asked a few questions. I can't even remember what the questions I asked were. But then I just started to... Um, kind of begin to explore, well, what does it mean when it feels like the mind is pretty, you know, okay with what's happening? What's going on? And so I began exploring the experience of wisdom. In my experience, I thought, I, I thought of wisdom as being something, you know, more nebulous, not something that would be experienced. And, and I also think I had an idea of wisdom being something kind of large, like a big kind of explosion that suddenly everything becomes clear, as opposed to what it actually was for me, which was a lot of little moments of understanding something and being able to say, oh, that, that's an understanding that I didn't have before. Or that's a way of experiencing things that bring some freedom in the mind. So the, the, the purpose of our practice, and the, the aim of our practice really is to cultivate wisdom, to cultivate a quality of mind that helps to free the mind. So the, the wisdom that we're referring to here is a particular kind of wisdom. I mean, we might think about wisdom in connection with, you know, you know, being wise in relationship with um, uh, how we drive a car or, or you know, so we, we think of, sometimes think of wisdom and knowledge as connected. You know, wisdom has a, a more special sound to it, but, but we often, you know, think about, we might think about wisdom as just being you know, there's, we could have wisdom about a lot of different things. We, we could know how to cook. We could know how to drive a car. But the wisdom that the Buddha is pointing to is a particular kind of wisdom that understands suffering, understands how our minds get hooked by suffering, understands the underlying roots of suffering. The Buddha's exploration, his, his own journey, was around this question of how and why do we suffer? And so it makes sense that what he understood was connected to his exploration, connected to his quest. And pretty much the, the, what the Buddha taught, you know, he is said to have said, all that I teach 
the only thing that I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. And so everything that he's pointing to is around this. And so the wisdom that is cultivated in our mindfulness practice is wisdom that supports understanding suffering. And that wisdom in the understanding of suffering begins to free the mind from those forces, those habitual forces that tend to uh, tie us up in our habits and patterns of struggle and suffering. So this understanding suffering, the, the the teachings the Buddha offered us are a set of practices that help us to understand our minds. So the understanding that's pointed to here isn't like book reading, although there is a piece of that. The, 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 the Buddhist texts point to three levels of wisdom, the wisdom of understanding things from a kind of an intellectual point, you know, hearing, receiving information, taking in just information about what the Buddha taught. And so there is this flavor of, you know, just learning. And then there is another level of wisdom, which is more where our minds begin to get engaged. We think about it. We reflect on, does it make sense? How does it make sense? We might begin to explore acting on some of the, um, the suggestions, some of the practices that the Buddha offered. And then the third level is when those practices begin to bear fruit, begin to uh, help us to understand in our own experience directly what is suffering? What is this, what's happening in, in my own heart and mind that is contributing to my experience of suffering? So the understanding that we're talking about, the understanding of suffering, is not an intellectual understanding. Ultimately, it is an understanding that is experiential. That we, th- so this is the wisdom. When, we, when, when the practice begins to flower, as I mentioned um, earlier, you know, as mindfulness gets established, as, the, as the, the mindfulness, as the continuity of mindfulness gets stronger, we begin to understand how our minds do what they do. We see how greed, aversion, and confusion contribute to um, our own suffering in our hearts and minds. An example around, um, around greed, about how we often miss this in experience. We, um, you know, with greed operating, something's pleasant happening in our experience, we want more of it, or we see something pleasant, we think having that would be good, we envision that in our minds, we, our, our, our kind minds leap into the future of the experience of having that and that feels good. That, that the mind that wants that and creates that idea of the having of it, it thinks it feels good. But what the mind is missing there, I mean, basically in that experience, the mind is kind of living in the future with the idea of something that's not happening right now and it's created a scenario that feels good. And so it thinks that this, you know, it feels good. It, it, it thinks it feels good. But if we actually start to look at the process that's happening, the experience of the wanting itself, that experience of wanting that leaning forward, that reaching towards, that also very often sense of this is not okay here and now because I don't have that thing. When we are um, aware of that, we become aware that 
that greed itself, that feeling that I have to have that thing to make me happy, that greed itself doesn't feel good. It, it's painful. It has that, that quality of unpleasant experience. And that's part of why we want to get the thing because that's how we can make that unpleasant experience of the wanting go away. You know, we get the thing we want and that feeling of wanting goes away. That's, we get kind of a double hit there of pleasure. We get the having of the thing and we get the wanting going away. But often we don't really notice this dynamic around wanting. And so as we begin, as our mindfulness begins to stabilize and we start noticing what it does, how it engages in our everyday activities, we start to see these patterns and habits of wanting, of aversion, of confusion, and we begin to feel into what is the human experience of that. Now, in, in, you know, in this kind of description where you talk, I talk about, I'm talking about, you know, wanting itself is painful. You know, when we're, when we're um, hearing that, you might think, well, you know, gee, do I want to live a life where I don't want anything? You know, is that, is that where I want to go? Um, because we think, you know, the, the good things that happen to us too, the things that, that are beautiful, you know, they come from some kind of a wish or an aspiration or, and, and is that also wanting? You know, do I have to get rid of that too? And this is what our minds say, you know, it's like, do, do I have to, like, does that, is that really a bad thing? To have an aspiration for, for something wholesome or beautiful? And so what I'll, I'll point to here is that um, you know, greed and aversion are shot through with delusion. They are shot through with beliefs and ideas and views about the necessity of acting on those um, energies. And when our mind is in the energy of greed or in the energy of aversion, whichever one, you know, we're in. When when the mind is in the energy of greed, that energy is telling us this is the only way you get something that's good. And so greed cannot fathom that there are other motivations that might have us acting towards accomplishing and doing and Um, engaging in the world. Greed and aversion can't fathom that there's anything other than them that runs the world. And so this takes a little, because we've been so conditioned by greed and aversion as being a lot of our motivation for doing things, you know, it takes a little bit of a leap of faith to explore when, you know, when greed is happening. And, and greed and aversion have some, some kind of particular qualities to them. They feel, when we feel into the energy of them, they hurt. So that wanting, the neediness, the kind of needing something, the, the, the needing to get rid of something, the needing to push something away, they feel unpleasant. Now generosity, love, compassion, those are energies that motivate us to engage in the world, to act in the world, to offer the best of ourselves, to support somebody in distress. And these qualities, when felt, when we experience them directly with mindfulness, they do not have that quality of constriction, of tightness, of, of that kind of pain. And so we can, through our um, mindfulness practice, and so this is in the establishing of mindfulness, receiving what's happening, we can begin to recognize and understand the difference between these qualities of mind that lead us in the direction of suffering and these qualities of mind that are wholesome, skillful, supportive for moving us in the direction of releasing greed, aversion, and delusion. 
So this is, this is what um, the practice of mindfulness is designed to help us see, to distinguish these movements of heart. And as the mindfulness gets more continuous, it gets more um, clear to us. And it actually isn't that hard when we start to feel into our experience. We do have a sense of when an energy, when a kind of an emotional impetus has a quality of expansiveness, of connection, of care, and when it has a, a quality of contraction and me, 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 and I need, I need, I need. You know, it, it's not that hard to tell the difference there as the mindfulness gets more established. And so in a way we can, we, that recognition or that distinction, the mind being able to distinguish between these different qualities in the mind this is wisdom at work. This is one of the most foundational forms of wisdom that the Buddha talked about, is recognizing this distinction between the qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion and how they, they contract and squeeze the heart and between these qualities of appreciation and gratitude and love and compassion and how they expand the heart. And so this is wisdom at work the recognition of this. And we, we notice this in a felt sense. You know, the, the, initially it might be just hearing about greed. You know, initially this, the teaching that I kind of gave in a kind of brief way here about what is greed and it doesn't feel good. You know, just hearing that makes you maybe pause and think, well, is that true for me? Can I, should I start, you know, maybe paying attention to this? And then speaking about uh, other motivations of heart that are available, that greed is not the only thing that, that motivates to, us to act. Aversion is not the only thing that motivates us to, to stop something that's happening in the world. And we begin to, uh, to understand at a feeling level these different energies. And so this, this um, you know, for me, a lot of the exploration o- around wisdom at this point, comes down to, like, how is the heart with this experience? Does it feel constricted? When it's constricted, there's probably greed or aversion or delusion at work. Does it feel expansive? Does it feel connected? There's probably wisdom, love, compassion at work. And so this, this kind of feeling of, the, of how the heart is in relationship to what's happening is a big part of my exploration of wisdom at this point. The experiential exploration of wisdom, I would say. But there are, as, as I mentioned earlier, there's different levels of wisdom and we can use um, you know, the first level of wisdom, as I mentioned, this kind of checking, you know, hearing, reading, taking in teachings, in particular in this case around suffering, how suffering is created, tools that support us to understand suffering. Just hearing these teachings adds um, something into our mind, maybe sparks our interest, maybe we start to engage. And as we engage, that's the second level of wisdom where we reflect on the teachings. We may at certain points be able to you know, use some of these as thoughts in the mind. And this isn't a, a pl- part of the teaching that is a part of this practice, which I haven't mentioned too much yet, which is using wisdom reflections in our practice to help us to balance our heart and mind. Sometimes this is one of the tools that supports us when something difficult is happening at times. So I've talked a lot about the, you know, wow, when you're being overwhelmed, finding something else to attend to. But there's a lot of area in the middle when there's something a little bit challenging happening. It's not just that you can just say, oh yeah, things as they are, okay with this as it's arising. But there may be some, some reminders that you can support yourself with. And this is using the second kind of wisdom. So you might be able to remind yourself, for instance, oh, what's happening right now is impermanent. It won't last forever. 
Can I sit with it now while it's happening? So that's, that's an aspect of wisdom. The Buddha points to you know, some, some basic flavors of wisdom in our, um, that, that begin to inform our understanding. And this impermanent nature of experience is one of them. We tend to not, um, so this is again, this is, this is a flavor of giving a teaching about impermanence. So this is this first level of wisdom. Um, we tend to not, we tend to, let's say, mistakenly attribute permanence to things that are impermanent at a lot of different levels. And through that mistaken attribution of things being permanent, then we tend to, because we think they're, re- they're permanent, we, we would take them to be, well, this is reliable. I can hold on to this. This is someplace to land. And so then we, 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 we hold on to them. And this is, again, this is where the, um, the suffering is created as we cling to things, trying to hold on to something that is changing, that is impermanent, that is unreliable, is a form of suffering. Now, it may, it may be fooling us for a little while because we uh, are not, at least maybe we're not initially aware of the changing nature of that experience and we are so relieved to have someplace to land for a little while with this particular, you know, construction of our, of our life. Oh, I figured it out. I can, I'm, I'm happy n- right now. And some part of us does know that this is not going to last. And yet we tend to feel somehow betrayed when things do change. You know, nothing, nothing is permanent. Our uh, last few weeks is such a demonstration of that. The people in paradise waking up that morning did not expect their homes to be gone by evening. You know, we don't usually wake up thinking, this may be my last day on the planet. This may be my last day in this home or in this place. Because we have this tendency to attribute permanence to things. We rely on them. And, and this isn't necessarily something that we should, you know, we shouldn't, we, it's not that we, um, you know, need to like let go of everything, and not live in houses and, you know, just try to construct our lives so that we're never landing anywhere. But, but what we do need to recognize is that things may end at any moment. And so this, again, this is, this is one of these uh, kinds of, wisdom that the Buddha points to. And we can sometimes reminding ourselves of this. Now, when something is unpleasant, we like the fact that it's impermanent, you know, and that can help us at times, you know, so there's a difficult thing arising. We can remind ourselves, okay, yep, this is not going to last. So, okay, maybe I can hang out with this for a little while. When we do like it, we don't like the fact of impermanence. And yet, uh, it can be helpful to remind ourselves again, okay, yes, this is pleasant for now. And can I remember that this too is impermanent? We don't have to push it away just because it's pleasant. We don't have to say, you know, this is a bad thing to have in my life. But to acknowledge that this, this too is something that may and will at some point end. And so we can, we can use reflections in our, in our practice to help us find some balance. So a few that I found useful. The impermanent one is, is helpful. But one of the most helpful ones I found is the one that Sayadaw Utejaniya offered. Um, and uh, the phrasing of it that he offered is, this is nature. You know, what's arising is nature. And the way I understand that, it, it maybe initially wasn't, so resonant, but as I reflected on it and thought about it, it became very, very resonant that this experience that's happening right now is a natural result of what has come before. It has been conditioned by the experiences of my past, what has happened, my own experience, my own choices, the conditions that are coming together right now that are out of my control. This experience is conditioned. And it's like um, 
you know, it's like a tree that's growing. A seed has been planted. This tree is growing. The conditions were supportive to allow this tree to grow. That's what's happening in this moment. We are experiencing in this moment the results of conditioning. And it's very natural. It's just the natural way that lives unfold. It's nature. What I'm experiencing in this moment is nature. And so that reflection on this is nature, it, it might be for you, it might be this is conditioned. You know, this, is, this is a natural result of what has come before. And for me, that, that reflection has been very powerful with both things that feel good and things that feel um, st- a struggle. So depression arising, just reminding myself, okay, this is nature. The conditions have arisen for this to be happening. Can I know that and hold it in that way? And, and remembering it's also impermanent. When beautiful states of mind arise, arise when love and compassion arise, this is nature. This too is conditioned. This is a beautiful state of mind. It too is impermanent. And so we can use reflection to support us. And then as we practice, and this is a piece I just want to like, um, touch on just briefly, just to kind of name some ways that as we practice, that we actually experience wisdom in the moment. This third level of wisdom, this, this, this level of wisdom that's not just theoretical, we're not just thinking about it or reminding ourselves of it, but seeing in the moment, seeing clearly in the moment, this experience. Some kind of understanding One of the things I'll point to here is that that, that uh, wisdom uh, develops not in the abstract, not because we've thought about things and reflected on them, but bu- because we have used some of these practices, particularly mindfulness, <laughs> to meet suffering. Wisdom develops in contact with suffering. It doesn't develop pretty much any other way. We, that the the practice of becoming mindful of our struggles, of our suffering, of the ways in which our mind feels tight and caught, this is how wisdom grows. And so in our receptive awareness practice, we've been exploring and talking about, okay, meeting what's arising and noticing that relationship. So we meet what's arising, you know, some experience, and what our relationship is may have this flavor of greed or aversion or confusion in it. When we touch into that, that experience, when, we, when that becomes what we're aware of, we are experiencing then, oh, this is the experience of greed. This is the experience of aversion. And as I said earlier, that's not pleasant. But that is where wisdom begins to grow. As we can hold with this um, awareness, this kind of curiosity of what is the human experience of aversion or what is the human experience of greed, that creates the conditions for us to be able to meet the suffering rather than either flee from it or trying to like, you know, get rid of it, fix it, change it in some uh, way out of greed or aversion. Now there is also a movement at times of compassion to take oneself out of a situation of suffering or to engage, to alleviate suffering. Again, you know, this, this exploration of the experience of the heart. Is there a constriction around 
this movement to engage or take oneself out of this situation or is there a sense of, you know, oh, this feels more connected, more resonant with a release from suffering. But this wisdom, you know, so this, it's not a mistake when wisdom, when, when suffering is arising in our experience. This is how we learn. And so in the exploration of, of our experience, often our first tastes of wisdom really come in connection with seeing suffering. So one of the, the, the first flavors of this is when we're meeting some experience of struggle of some kind, perhaps of a frustration or an anger or confusion. And the, um, the mindfulness is aware of it. It's aware that it's painful. Oh, this is what anger feels like. This is what frustration feels like. And, and yet there's this kind of recognition of a little bit of space around the experience. There's a difference between being caught by anger, believing the anger in terms of, you know, the motivating force of it, those, those deluding uh, voices that are connected with anger. You better do this or it's going to be a big problem. Fix this, change this, whatever. The, the, those, those, it, those deluding voices of anger that make us get caught by the anger, make us believe the anger in terms of that is the only way to move forward here, is to follow through on this anger. And, and there are times when we see, oh, this is just anger arising. And there's a kind of a, oh, that's all that is. So there's a feeling of a little bit of space around the anger. Maybe it's a recognition that it's just something that, like, this is nature. This is just something that's arising. So there's, this, is, this is an experience that we can touch into with mindfulness, this recognizing the difference between being caught in the middle of something and being able to witness it. That experience of being able to kind of step back and recognize, oh, that's what's happening. Anger's, it's just anger that's arising. And I can be with that. That is wisdom at work. The, the, the factor of wisdom is there in that moment. Even though the anger is still there, there is this kind of space that lets us meet it in a completely different way. It feels vastly different to recognize an experience, a, a reactive emotion, as just being, oh, this is a reactive emotion arising, versus being caught in that reactive emotion. And when, when we have that difference or that shift or that understanding, that is wisdom that is helping us to do that, to, to meet things in that way. Sometimes it might feel like, you know, it's like, um, you know, putting a car into neutral. You know, when the, when the gears of some kind of reactive emotion are spinning, it's like the gears are engaged and it's just tumbling on. But this sense of, of um, the space around the experience might feel like the gears have been disengaged. We're no longer feeding it. There's no longer that kind of forward momentum. It feels like it's just spinning out, perhaps. So that's one flavor of this, recognizing wisdom at work. And, you know, you can see this. It doesn't actually take I talked about establishing mindfulness and you know the continuity of mindfulness is what allows us to see wisdom at work but the continuity of mindfulness that's necessary to see wisdom at work it can be there for like two seconds and then you can see something so clearly 
And so it's not as if we have to really like work really, really hard to get some like days of continuity before we can start seeing this wisdom at work. It can begin to happen in brief moments, in split seconds. The kind of the, the, the way that we're practicing the instructions of how to be mindful create the conditions for this wisdom to appear for this wisdom to arise and to kind of, you know, I mentioned that, the, that um, there's kind of a, a natural movement in our minds towards freedom when, when the, um, the information that we get is more accurate. And so around greed and aversion, you know, the, the more accurate information instead of being caught in the delusion of this greed or this aversion is going to do something good for me, is the, wow, this greed and aversion is painful. That actually, that recognition is also wisdom at work. The recognition that aversion is painful, that is wisdom that is, is pointing out, this is not so helpful. And our system moving us in the direction of well-being begins to, this is where wisdom kind of joins in with our kind of natural orientation of our minds. The, the wisdom begins to help the mind shift to a different direction. I'll just mention one other flavor of, um, of wisdom and then take some comments and questions. Um, another flavor that has been particularly uh, helpful to me, and it's actually connected to this reflection I mentioned, that this is nature, is, so that reflection is reminding us that things are a result of causes and conditions. The seeing that things are arising as a, as a result of causes and conditions the actual witnessing of that is also a form of wisdom at work. When we see the, the, uh, how something is put together out of our history, out of what's happening in the moment, we see the conditions. We, we can sometimes see how something is created or, or conditioned in the moment. And so one example of this so many different examples of this. Um, um, which one should I pick? <laughs> I'll pick self-hatred. <laughs> um, so, you know, self-hatred, I did spend a lot of time just kind of meeting it and times caught in it, times where I could see it, oh yeah, this is self-hatred, you know, okay, this is self-hatred arising, I can be with this. So a lot of time spent observing this, this quality in the mind. And at times, needing to step aside from it, not able to navigate it, it was too strong. But at times also being able to see, you know, this is conditioned. You know, at one point I had a kind of a, a, a seeing into, in a way, a kind of seeing into the history of this pattern in my in my, um, my life, a kind of a recognition. And, and I saw this not through thinking about it, but just kind of seeing the, the kind of the pattern of self-hatred coming into being and, and with it kind of thoughts and memories of my life and how I was relating to those thoughts and memories. And so kind of seeing that the, the self-hatred was connected with a whole, like whole host of experiences from my past. That created a lot of compassion in my heart to see, oh, of course this happens. You know, look at this history. Of course this happens. And so that, that created a, a little bit of space. You know, seeing that kind of conditioned nature of the self-hatred. And then there was another experience where, you know, more in the moment moment-to-moment seeing and just seeing the kind of just beginning threads of self-hatred kind of putting themselves together in the mind and seeing that what it was what was going on there 
was a thought that arose in the mind and a believing process that began believing that thought. And that, that really was the foundational kind of conditioning around the self-hatred. It could come in many ways, through many memories, lots of different, you know, histories that could be remembered. But the foundation there was like, there's a thought, and I believe that. And seeing that conditioning at work. You know, that, again, this was, this was wisdom at work. This wasn't something I tried to see. It wasn't something I said, I'm going to see how this is conditioned. I was just observing the self-hatred just knowing what's coming up, what's happening in the moment, and seeing this kind of, this believing process happening. And, and this recognition in that moment, the wisdom expressed itself as, this is just a thought. It has no inherent reality. That was wisdom at work. The wisdom did the job. And in that moment, that, that pattern really very deeply kind of fell apart. It was, it was like seeing that magic of the believing around that particular pattern. It's like seeing the, the, uh, the enchantment, you know, kind of like the magic show of that particular pattern. This thought and the belief is like the fairy dust that makes you take up residence in that. That fairy dust, that enchantment being exposed had a power, seeing that had a power. That, that depth of wisdom was so powerful in terms of uh, releasing so much of that pattern in my life. So this kind of seeing of conditioning, you know, in, in different ways we'll see conditioning. Sometimes we might see it more connected to history, connected to past. And, and that, for me, was really powerful because it did help me to have much more spaciousness. It's like, oh, right, of course this is happening. Oh, this is just conditioned. Okay, I can meet this. And then that willingness to just meet the pattern allowed me to see the conditioning at a more a fundamental level, at a kind of more kind of precise level. So seeing conditioning or again this is this is like this is this was wisdom arising that the conditions were in place by the continuity of mindfulness. And so wisdom isn't something we do but rather we create the conditions that support the arising of wisdom and then that wisdom helps to untangle the, the confusion, untangle the threads of our like, knots of suffering. So that's just some reflections on wisdom. And you know, I, I partly speak about this at the beginning of the retreat to, I mean, you, many of you, most of you probably, you know, depending on how long you've been practicing, but for me, you know, the, when I look back at my, at my practice, um, I wouldn't have said in the first, like, couple of months that there was wisdom developing. But as I look back on it, there was a lot of wisdom developing. I can see the wisdom that was in play in those first few months of practice now that I understand how wisdom functions. And so I speak to this so that you might also start recognizing how you already have wisdom at work. How it's already functioning in your, in your experience. One of the great things about wholesome qualities of mind, so wisdom is a wholesome quality of mind, along with love and compassion and joy. You know, when we are mindful and aware of the wholesome qualities of mind, it creates the conditions for them to arise more frequently. And so the recognition of wisdom at work is actually helpful. So I speak to it so that hopefully you'll be able to to recognize during this week as we practice together, many of you, for the rest of the week as we practice together, you might begin to recognize these moments 
of a little bit of a shift, a little bit of an understanding, maybe a little bit of a release from suffering and understand it as wisdom at work. So any, any questions or comments? We have just a few. Yeah, let's um, take the mic and uh, Kumi first and then Susan. So did you say wisdom rises only in suffering? <laughs> wisdom um, arises in connection with suffering, I would say yes. Um, and yet, you know, suffering has many different flavors to it. Um, so sometimes we, uh, you know... Um, so, yeah, what I'd say actually is at the beginning, you know, so the foundational, like there's, there's a foundational kind of description of how the practice unfolds. And the first thing that needs to happen is that we understand suffering for what it is. That's the, that's the foundation on which the entire unfolding of our practice happens. As we move on in the practice, um, there is wisdom that arises as we understand and recognize this is a wholesome quality of mind. So, but, but, but it takes understanding unwholesome qualities of mind to begin to recognize wholesome qualities of mind so that you begin to understand the difference between the two. But then wisdom can arise based on wholesome qualities. You know, the understanding of how this helps the mind move away from suffering. But the kind of the beginning, (laughs) you know, the foundation off of which the entire um, understanding rests, we will come into contact with suffering. But I wouldn't, yeah, but I, I guess I would say that, that, that there is a kind of like, to just say, you know, wisdom never arises in connection with something wholesome. That's not true. I mean, there is, there is wisdom that will arise in connection with something wholesome. But we do need to know the difference. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There's another one here. I think it's not on. Thank you. Okay. Um, So this is bringing up something that I'm suffering with, and so I'm really excited about hearing this and hope I'll get some help with it. Um, So actually, somebody yesterday spoke about a heart um, speeding up. I have a heart arrhythmia, which is not serious. Doctor says never worry about this. But I can feel funny beats, and when I do anxiety arises and bad feeling and a lot of tension in my chest which is somewhat painful although not excruciating and as you mentioned yesterday focusing on the breath when you're meditating is not very helpful with dealing with these things because it focuses where the sensations are but I don't seem to be able to meditate without focusing or at least without paying attention to the breath Uh so I've been dealing this, with this for a while, and I've tried to be present with it without seeming to... So when you say present with it, you mean the actual sensations or yes. present with the anxiety that comes as a result of the sensations? Yes, both of them. Okay. Um, and then there's a, another piece of it which is more positive, which is that recently I've discovered that if I do the kind of relaxation that you're having us do at the beginning of meditation, that will calm it down enough that it's, it's that state of, well, yeah, I don't like this, it's unpleasant, and I have aversion for it, but it's okay. Right. So I guess I'm not sure how much doing that is going to keep me from eventually finding some of the wisdom of... Because I guess it does feel like it's, it's a very delusion to feel anxious because there isn't really danger, but... Yes. So, so what I'd say is that, you know, that this place of wisdom developing in connection with suffering is when the mind can hold it and be okay with it happening. So, 
if you are experiencing anxiety and being attentive to anxiety is not allowing you to be okay with the experience of anxiety, that's not the time to be attending to it. So, um, you know, that the, the, the time we can attend to things, and this is the w- part of the wisdom that develops, uh, is knowing when, it's, it's when the mind can meet something and hold it, and when we need to do something, like relax for a little while. So there, there, you know, there, there may be, um, you know, so you've noticed that, that there is a possibility of feeling those sensations without the anxiety arising. There's some, some understanding that can develop there, you know, that you get the direct experience. So this is another way wisdom can happen. So you see that sometimes the anxiety comes, right? You see that anxiety happening in connection with the, the experience. And then there are other times when that anxiety is not there. And you get the understanding, well, it's possible to not have that anxiety there. And so there's a learning that happens there, too. You know, that the, the, the sometimes in that, in that anxiety, there's often a lot, a lot of the delusion that happens um, is around beliefs. Um, so, you know, I talked about the, the delusion of aversion and greed being connected to the belief that I need to act on this, that this is the only way, there's no other way to deal with this situation or this issue. And this, there's a belief in there with that anxiety that, um, you know, that, that this is, this is you know, it's kind of like this is, um, it's not possible to experience this without the anxiety. And so when the anxiety is there, that belief is there. And so, um, you know, the, the, the seeing the possibility of um, having that experience without having the anxiety begins to poke holes in that belief. And so it's sometimes some, a, a way you might m- more directly meet it at times um, when the anxiety is happening. You know, just um, check in. So w- what we sometimes might want to do is tell myself, like, tell, tell ourselves, like, I don't need to feel anxious. You know, this is not necessary, you know. So, but some part of our system, that anxiety believes it's necessary. And so telling ourselves not to believe it isn't always the way. But we might be able to acknowledge, you know, what is being believed right now? You know, to, to, igno- to, to check in, you know, when that anxiety is there, find out, you know, check in. What is being believed right now? Sometimes that exposing of the belief, you know, kind of like we talked about exposing the attitudes in connection with experience helps the mind begin to have a new relationship with them. Sometimes exposing the beliefs also has a powerful effect. So we, we could see, you know, I don't know exactly what the belief is, you know, it might, it might have a, a, a different flavor. And so when you're in that place, it's like, well, what's being believed right now? I'm going to die. That's what's being believed right now. Okay. That so not telling yourself not to believe it, mm-hmm. but acknowledging that it is a belief. Then the the mind begins to recognize. So one of the like wisdoms that can happen there is that the mind begins to recognize this is a belief. It's not truth, mm-hmm. but we're not telling ourselves not to believe it. We're just, yeah. we're just a, a recognizing this is a belief. And that actually is pretty powerful. When we take something, when, when wisdom can expose something as, um, as a belief as opposed to just a truth, there's something very powerful about that. And then you also might be able to see different levels of belief in that, in that thing. So that's another, another thing that you can do or explore there. But I would, I would say that if it feels like when you're attending to this, if it feels like the anxiety is getting stronger... Don't keep going. Okay. It, if, it's, if not it's, so, the, it's not so much the emotion of anxiety, it's the tension. The okay, so, so that's an interesting thing to notice. Maybe that you, you said anxiety earlier, and so maybe what's happening is there's a physical sense here, mm-hmm. and it also, when that happens, maybe there is a, a kind of a, a, a physical impact that creates some tension. Maybe that's all that's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, that the, the sensation of tension can happen for different reasons than anxiety. Yeah. And yet we might attribute anxiety to that 
sensation. And so that's a real, that you said that, you know, that's an interesting place to explore also. So when you notice that experience of the, the fluttering, the, the, the weird heartbeats, oh, and there's also some tension here. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Can it be okay? Is, yes, it's unpleasant. Can, it, can I know that tension? And is there anxiety? Mm-hmm. Or is it just tension in the body? Mm-hmm. So those are a couple of... Okay, good. Thank thoughts. you. Yeah. That's helpful. And then maybe one or two more. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how to say this briefly, but I had a, a very peculiar belief sort of thing arise um, just today on the way home. I was just like driving home and a thought came in. I thought of a situation. Then all of a sudden this really what I consider, you know, unkind, judgmental stuff came in and I latched onto that. And, And then I thought, well, I must be responsible for this thought coming up with conditions and blah blah because why did I latch on to that awful conclusion regarding this situation? So I got kind of confused about conditions that create things arising because I felt, I felt like I was responsible for that thought because I so easily grabbed it. Yeah. So that yeah, this is an interesting kind of question. Um, it's it's a deep question. It's it. I could talk a whole Dharma talk about it. So, see if I can pull a little piece Thank out to you. offer. Because <laughs> uh. <laughs> I totally believed it. I believed it, and I'm. I, I so so yes. It now. I mean, so seeing that you believed it, so that those beliefs that that thought arose, that like for myself, like the the self hatred thoughts. And the belief in those self-hatred thoughts, you know, that, that was a product of conditions. You know, I lived my life and the conditions of my life and the interactions that I had created some of the conditions that had me believing those thoughts. They arise because of conditions. Even the clinging to them arises because of conditions. So in a way we could say, um, you know, much, much of the time what we see unfolding is just something that has a powerful momentum. It has a powerful momentum from conditioning. And um, we, we, you know, the, the seeing of it is great because, you know, so you actually saw yourself kind of take hold of it. I did. It, <laughs> it felt, it was like, what? <laughs> what? But I couldn't let it go. Yes. And so, but, so that's, you know, that's a, a demonstration of kind of the power of the conditioning. You know, so, so you can kind of check in, like, you know, can I let this go? Well, no, I can't. You know, it's like, wow, this is strong. So, you know, it's not, when you can see, you know, sometimes we can see ourselves pick something up and there is a sense of, yeah, I don't have to be holding on to this. We can kind of let it go. So sometimes there is that possibility. But sometimes when the conditioning is very strong, we can just see, no, I can't let this go. You know, we think we should have control over our minds. But this is one of the, so this is where I say it's a, it's a deep teaching. Um, the Buddha taught a teaching around not self. And he said, you know, our minds are not self, you know, our mental formations. And in this experience of a thought arising and that kind of latching on and believing that thought, those are both what we would call mental formations. They're, they're kind of these things that arise in our minds. So thoughts, emotions, beliefs, ideas, these are all mental formations. And the Buddha said, mental formations are not self. If mental formations were self, it would be possible to say of mental formations, may my mental formations be thus, may they not be thus. But because mental formations are not self, it is not possible to say of them, may they be thus, may they not be thus. And so you are experiencing that in that moment. What you are experiencing is the not self nature of your mind. 
You know, you have, you've seen this kind of, so essentially the, the conditions of your past was strong enough that that thought arose and the mind latched onto it. And, and you saw it. And there wasn't much say in not doing that. It's painful. You experience the pain of that when you're mindful. And that begins to help the mind recognize, wow, this way, this habit, this conditioned thing, wow, this is, this is not so helpful. Slowly over time, the mind begins to understand that's not so helpful to cling to, and it begins to release it. But what I would say is that, you know, the conditioning, uh, you know, so you said, you, you said you felt like I was responsible for, for doing that. What I would say is that the conditions were responsible for the doing of it. And we get to experience the results of that. And if we experience those results with mindfulness and compassion, that creates the conditions for something different to happen, for a transformation to happen around those patterns and conditions. So that's, that's a just, you know, that's, that's what I can say right now. <laughs> well, you know, how do I, how do I, how can I say that? How do I stop or how do I let go of feeling guilty feeling like okay I created those conditions well, ag- again you know we you, you may not be able to stop that either you can try you can say oh this is guilt I don't need that if I feel like it's I, all my you might fault. you might you might be able to let go of it if you can't yeah. then you need to acknowledge that feeling guilty is also conditioned and it also needs to be held oh Oh, can I know this is feeling guilty is arising? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Of yeah. course, this is nature too. Yeah. I, you know, but the, but the, the <laughs> and, you know, it's like we we feel like we should be able to control our minds. Oh my God, it was <laughs> it was really awful because it was so clear and ugly. Well, and and, and this is a, this <laughs> is a piece of our of our you know as as the practice unfolds and we start seeing very clearly the unfolding of our conditioning and how much you know negativity there is in there. We do sometimes feel like oh, it's really humbling. You know, it's very humbling to see what goes on in there. Yeah. And we really have to have some compassion for ourselves and to, you know, see all of it, including any guilt, including any confusion. It's like, oh, this, yeah. this too. Um, what is still haunting me is that I feel that I created those thoughts because of my past behavior. So again, this is, this is just an idea that you created them. Okay. It's a belief. There's a belief there okay. that I created them. I mean, that's an attribution of self to conditions, basically. We all do this. You know, this is, this is the sense of self that we all feel. You know, it's like, I did this. I, I, I you know, I made this happen. Um, and conditions unfolded, choices were made uh, that resulted in this unfolding. Um, the attribution of a self that did it is, it's a mistake. It's, it's just, it's just a, it's just an idea. Hmm. And, you know, that's something that um, I can say that and you can go, hmm. (laughs) 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 You don't have to believe it, but what I encourage you to notice is that feeling of I did that. That too is an experience that can be known. I did that. What does it feel like to feel I did that? There's kind of flavors of the sense of I am we begin to get familiar with. It's like, oh, there's the I am that feels guilty. There's the I am that feels responsible. There's the I am that feels like a partner or a parent. You know, so, so then you just get familiar with all these different flavors of this is the experience of me, and we actually start to see that this, too, is not very constant. It's, it's a changing phenomenon. It's a, we attribute a sense of self to something. That's kind of, at one point, I, I, I ex- described to myself, what I call self is just a kind of familiar experience of contraction. 
That's, that's what it is. <laughs> so explore it. You know, it's like that's another thing. It's just another thing to, uh, that's arising to notice. And you don't have to believe in not-self. You, you know, don't I, have it, to believe in that. It isn't that I don't believe it. I don't quite understand it. I mean, because I'm open. I mean, this is like great stuff. But I, when I don't understand it, then I start so the, up the a way, lot of So the way to begin to understand it is to explore when it feels like there is a sense of self. And that is me identifying with I'm, I'm just really an awful person. That, yeah, in that case, yes. I mean, there's other times when it feels like, oh, I'm a good person. You can notice that one, too. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime it feels like Mary comes into being. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes they're not there so much. You know, you're walking in the grocery store, and it's like, not until somebody comes around the corner and looks at you, it's like, oh, there's Andrea. <laughs> So then there really is no answer to who am I then? (laughs) Well, what I would encourage is an exploration of that question. Mm -hmm. Not trying to answer it, but what is the experience of it when it feels like me or or who I am? Okay. So just that's another experience that we can know, that we can recognize. So would you call that a a, a time of wisdom? <laughs> I would call recognizing <laughs> recognizing that a sense of self is arising is a type of wisdom. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I on to that one for a while. <laughs> so let's, um, let's take a shorter walk. Let's do a 20-minute walk and come back at 4.